Hi, everyone. Welcome to Being Patient Brain Talks. I'm Deborah Kahn, founder of Being Patient. The use of antipsychotics to treat um, behavioral symptoms of dementia is a topic frequently um, raised by our community. We hear from a lot of you. Um, it's a real pain point in terms of caregiving um, or with people diagnosed. How to take the how to know what medications are the right um, at, right ones to take and for what symptoms. So we thought we would um, invite Dr. Dylan Wint um, from Cleveland Clinic, um, who joins us today from Las Vegas. Dylan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me again. Okay, so you know one of the things that um i realized um having a mom with um, alzheimer's disease is the fact that the medications that are being prescribed um for to treat behavioral symptoms of dementia weren't actually made for dementia um so you know here lies the big problem of how do you find the right medication to treat what symptom? So as a doctor, let's just start with what are some of the questions you ask um, people who come to you who seek medication um, for some of these behavioral symptoms? Yeah, and you bring up a great point, you know, when over 90% of people with Alzheimer's disease develop behavioral symptoms, and yet there are zero medicines on the market developed for behavioral symptoms in any dementia, including uh, Alzheimer's disease, it really does present a big problem. So um, one of the key questions that I ask when a behavioral problem develops is sort of the space of time over which it develops. Because behavioral problems that develop over hours or days tend less likely to be due to the disease itself as opposed to some other factor, um, usually somewhere in the internal environment, dehydration, infection, uh, sometimes COPD, uh, that's chronic obstructive pulmonary disease exacerbation. So the, the time course over which the symptom has developed is really, really crucial. Um, other questions though, let's assume that we're talking about something that has developed in the course of dementia, it's one of the symptoms of dementia. Um, one key question is the extent to which that behavioral symptom interferes with care. So is the person not eating? Are they uh, aggressive or agitated? Um, does it interfere with sleep? So safety is going to be the top priority when addressing any behavioral condition. Um, and then, and safety does include both preventing acts of commission, striking out or whatever, but also acts of omission, not eating, not bathing, not taking medications and so forth. And then, you know, I don't typically ask this, but I do try and assess the extent to which this is something that is affecting the caregiver's quality of life or the patient's quality of life, not because either one is more important than the other, but because the way of managing it may be very different. So something that is really frustrating for a caregiver that's a behavioral symptom that's not getting in the way of care and it's not dangerous, it may be uh, more the caregiver support that you need to, right. to provide. And that is because anytime we use a medication to treat a behavioral symptom, we're exposing a patient to a risk um, because we're putting a chemical in their body. And so there has to be some benefit to the patient of that exposure. That's a really good point. Um, and there's a lot to unpack in all of that. But I, I want to start first with the timeline of symptoms. So 
you know, as we know, um, dementia, Alzheimer's disease in particular is very long disease for uh, many people. Um, most people live with it t 10 years or more. Um, you know, in I can only really relate it to my own um, case with my family, which is we tended to see uh, we're tending to see more of the behavioral issues later on. Um, where my mom is in a, you know, uh, probably a, a towards the later stage. Um, so when you said when it appears matters, what does that exactly mean? If you get them earlier, um, or if you get them later, what, what exactly are you looking for? Uh, so I'm sorry, I meant more, um, the, the, the time from which the symptom starts until it becomes a, a pretty significant symptom. So if someone comes in and says, yeah, things were going fine until last week, but since then he's been really agitated, throwing things, um, that's a pretty rapid change in the time scale of dementia. Whereas, well, you know, there's always been some irritability, but over the past year, we've seen it get worse and worse. Um, that is more in line with the degenerative changes that occur in dementia when it occurs can also be somewhat important so one great example is the presence of hallucinations hallucinations are really quite common in people with advanced alzheimer dementia but not so common in people who are within their first couple of years of alzheimer dementia it may mean that there's some other condition going on sort of the classic one for visual hallucinations is lewy body disease so the 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 time during the whole disease course, when a symptom develops can be informative primarily for diagnosing the condition, but the rate at which a symptom goes from zero to 60 is informative in terms of whether this is likely to be due to the underlying dementing process or due to some other, uh, some other intervening process. Okay, and we're, we're talking a lot, I mean, when we say behavioral symptoms, we are talking about, you know, a huge range, everything kind of that's out of the norm from, you know, you stole my watch to you're not my husband or wife to, um, you know, anger, fits of anger and rage. I, I mean, there's, there's, there's a huge range one can experience um, suffering from dementia, uh, depression being another one. So how, how does a doctor uh, figure out what the right medication is to treat a particular symptom? I mean, it's, you know, we hear stories of people who have tried five different medications, finally found the one that seems to be working or never finds the one that works. And so, and that's not surprising considering these medications aren't made for people with dementia, mm -hmm. but how as a doctor, do you sort that out and figure out which one to control what? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, it, you can broadly divide, divide um, let's behavioral symptoms into in dementia into big categories. So there are psychosis symptoms. So those would include delusions, which are fixed false beliefs with no support in reality and hallucinations, which are sensory experiences, hearing, seeing, feeling something that's not actually there. So, and then uh, suspicion would fall under delusions. So believing somebody's doing something that they're not doing. So there's kind of the psychosis symptoms. Those are the ones that antipsychotics were developed to treat, not in people with dementia, but in people with primary psychiatric disorders like schizophrenia, uh, major depressive disorder. There are, then there are mood symptoms, which can include depression, 
anxiety, um, apathy could be included in there. Um, and then there are symptoms that, uh, for lack of a better term, we might call hyperactive symptoms. So agitation, aggression, um, aberrant motor behavior, such as pacing and picking and things like that. So there are these broad categories and there are medicines that seem to generally do better than others within those broad categories. For psychosis, the antipsychotics seem to be um, the most effective. Uh, actually, they seem to be the only thing that's effective. Um, for aggression and agitation, there is um, evidence that maybe the serotonin medications that we usually classify as antidepressants, so the SSRIs, <clears throat> can be useful there. Uh, and similarly for the mood symptoms, with the exception of apathy, which doesn't seem to respond, um, the, the, serotonin, the serotonin increasing agents seem to be the best. So there are these broad categories where particular um, types of medications work the best. Then it comes down to, you know, for a given individual with a given problem, what might be best for them? I saw a gentleman a couple of days ago who uh, had symptoms of depression and one of the primary symptoms that he was losing weight, 30 pounds. So I put him on a medication that treats depression, but also tends to cause increased appetite and weight gain because that was sort of an acute problem in his case. So using side effects as benefits, um, that can be helpful. Avoiding certain side effects. So in someone who is drowsy all day, you want to try and avoid an antidepressant that is known to make people drowsy. Um, and then the antipsychotics, we tend to try to avoid using unless uh, there is some harm being caused by the behavior or there's risk of harm. And that's because the antipsychotics have risks of harm to the patient just by taking them. Right, and we have a, um, a couple of comments that are coming, but one um, is that um, her this viewer's mom has um, become worse since lockdown. And that's not, no surprise. We're hearing a lot of depression, apathy due to COVID and the isolation behind it. Is it necessary? I mean, you know, would you treat someone for kind of depression during this period of time? Because it is really understanding that, you know, why something like COVID would trigger a depression. I mean, I have had days where I feel really blue and, you know, yeah. so is, is that reason to medicate? Um, not necessarily. So we know that adjustment to life circumstances can cause changes in mood. Uh, but we also know that those changes in mood could potentially trigger a major depressive episode. So when we think about these medicines, we have to think about them not in terms of, you know, an antidepressant helps somebody's mood. W what antidepressants seem to help with are people who have a depressed or anhedonic, meaning lack of pleasure mood, in the presence of several other symptoms, usually including a sleep disturbance, a disturbance in appetite, uh, either psychomotor slowing or agitation. So that's looking very slowed down or, or very speeded up and jittery, decreased interest, decreased energy. So antidepressants are meant to treat a syndrome that consists of several symptoms, including um, sad mood or, or a mood where there's not much pleasure. So it would depend on what, what kinds of other symptoms this person is experiencing. But in general, if we can address things with non-pharmacologic, non-medication means uh, it, it's a better way to go. So is the person in complete lockdown where maybe they could just go for a walk up and down the driveway each day? Are we making sure that there's plenty of 
sunlight in the house when it's daytime and plenty of activity and things to do to kind of replace those things that you can't go out and do. Uh, th those sorts of measures are, are generally preferable to using medications. Yeah, absolutely. And another interesting comment coming up, and I'm not sure we have enough data around this, but um, worth uh, talking about. So, you know, we're all a lot of uh, people, especially with dementia, are getting the vaccine because they're in that age group. Um, and um, one gentleman who's um, viewing right now said that he reported to the CDC that his wife's confusion got much worse after taking um, the Moderna vaccine. She's improved some since then, but not totally back to normal. Um, she has her second shot and obviously he's hoping it doesn't get worse. But have you heard that yet? And now that people are getting vaccinated? I haven't heard that yet, but it wouldn't surprise me. And I I would expect it. What uh, vaccines are intended to do is sort of activate the, not sort of, but what they're intended to do is activate the immune system. And we do see that in people with dementia, when there's activation of the immune system, there can be uh, behavioral trouble and cognitive trouble. So I, I would expect that some uh, people with dementia who get the vaccine will experience lethargy or confusion, maybe even agitation because typical people without dementia who get the vaccine sometimes experience those things. So the, the brain with Alzheimer's disease or other dementias is a vulnerable and reactive brain. The same things that any of us would respond to, you can expect the person with dementia to be more likely to respond and for that response to be greater. Um, so by the same token, I would expect that um, this will settle down um, you know, after a few days, just like in us, it might settle down after 24 to 48 hours. It might take someone with dementia, you know, uh, three days, seven days to kind of feel better after that activation to their immune system. That's interesting. I actually didn't know that. So that's a really great point um, made. Um, another question about, you know, we talked about Lewy body and obviously hallucinations are one of the earlier symptoms for that type of dementia. What about Alzheimer's disease? If, if the person is um, experiencing hallucinations, this person is asking, does that mean they're actually in a later stage of the disease? Uh, no, hallucinations do not necessarily mean a later stage of the disease, they're just statistically more likely to happen as the disease progresses. Um, a lot depends on what parts of the brain are affected in a particular case. So there's some people who actually present with hallucinations, even visual ones, visual ones fairly early, and that actually can be traced to a heavier concentration of the disease in visual areas of the brain. So no, I didn't mean to imply that hallucinations will only occur in later stages, just you know, if someone who has mild or moderate Alzheimer's disease does not have hallucinations now, it does not mean that will never be part of, of their syndrome. They may develop them later. Um, they just tend to, to, to develop later on. Okay, and um, as a follow-up to that, um, Maria Locke is asking, is Lewy body dementia the only one that presents hallucinations early on? Well, you just said no, you could get them in Alzheimer's, right. but like- But it's the only one for which that is one of the defining characteristics or what we call core criteria. So recurrent, well-formed visual hallucinations should definitely make you think about Lewy body disease and evaluate for the other core features. Um, if you get told, you know, uh, these hallucinations are due to Alzheimer's and there hasn't been any other questioning about Lewy body disease that probably should be readdressed just to make sure. 
Yeah, and I mean, I, I brought this up in other talks, but I think it's such an important um, point. We interviewed a gentleman, Don Kent, who had to go to seven neurologists before he finally got a Lewy body diagnosis. And why was that? Because his hallucinations were when he ate, what was sweet tasted salty and salty tasted mm. sweet. And uh -huh. most doctors weren't identifying that as a hallucination, which it yeah. in fact was. Mm. So often, it's, often it can be tricky, like hallucinations sure. can really kind of mask themselves. Like they're, yeah. they're not always the people coming out of the walls, yeah. right? And in fact, that wouldn't qualify as a core criterion for Lewy body disease because hallucinations and other modalities, they're supportive, meaning that people with Lewy body disease do have those, but it's not specific enough to Lewy body disease that someone should have necessarily said right off the bat, aha, Lewy body disease. But examining for other brain abnormalities, brain function abnormalities would be very important and might have led to an earlier diagnosis. Yeah. And what about fits of rage? Um, I've heard, I mean, friends of mine whose parents have dementia have said, we put mom on, you know, ex antidepressant, and it's kind of turned her into a zombie, you know, it's like, kind of juggling that, well, she's calmed down, but she's certainly not herself. So how do you manage that? Um, sometimes you have to bite the bullet and accept a side effect, particularly if you, you know, you've tried a few other things in, in, in other classes of drugs. Um, ideally, the, the, the goal to keep in mind is optimizing quality of life. So for example, if there were a drug out there that gave you 45 IQ points, but it caused you to sleep 23 hours a day, you know, even if I had Alzheimer's disease, I might not take that drug. It might make me smarter, but what am I doing with that? And similarly, you know, there might have to be a decision about the fits of rage versus the, the flattening. Uh, flattening out is something that we do see with the serotonin agents. Sometimes trying a different one is helpful, but if fits of rage are dangerous, then you want to approach that cautiously. Okay, this may not be the ideal drug. Let's see if we can ease on to a different medication in the same class, or now that the symptom is under better control, and this has been shown in behavioral medicine repeatedly, once a symptom is brought under control, sometimes that control can be maintained with a lower dose than it took to get the symptoms under control initially. Yeah, it's really just kind of, you have to keep trying, right? And um, uh, Aaron Cosentino uh, is asking, can we talk a little bit about frontal temporal uh, dementia and um, primary progressive aphasia? Um, they're not often talked about and we need more information. Um, and then I guess this is the name of a, a, a drug, Depakote or? Depakote, yeah. yes. Depakote um, is not working. Mm -hmm. So uh, people with frontotemporal dementia have uh, very commonly have behavioral problems. In fact, there's a whole subtype of frontotemporal dementia called behavioral variant where the primary symptoms are behavioral and there may not be very much cognitively. So those, those behaviors are typically disinhibition, uh, loss of empathy, so not really having a sense of what other people might be feeling or caring what they might be feeling. Uh, that goes along with apathy. Sometimes there'll be real ritualistic behaviors, the need to do a particular thing over and over the same way. Um, the, the, the behavioral problems in frontotemporal dementia seem to respond most robustly to serotonin agents. And a medicine called trazodone um, does have a couple of studies actually demonstrating its effectiveness in controlling frontotemporal dementia symptoms. Uh, Depakote not working, I think 
it, it's certainly a reasonable drug to try uh, depending on the symptoms, especially if the symptoms were disinhibition or anger or aggression. Um, but if it's not working, then it's reasonable to supplement it or, or to try something else. There is, if, if anyone has the question out there, what drug should I use for this symptom in this dementia? Um, the answer is, I don't know, because nobody knows uh, for sure. There are some general guidelines about what we might start with. And so in FTD, generally, we sort of go with agents that increase levels of serotonin uh, activity, particularly trazodone. Okay, um, this is a great question. Um, as, uh, this person is asking, do you advocate giving antipsychotics when people are reaching the end stage of life, especially just now when COVID is affecting so many, many doctors are not stopping these meds at the end of life, and I feel like it makes them very lethargic. So again, we're talking about quality of life. If someone is nearing the end of life and they are terrified that you know someone's coming to get them or harm them in some way, then I would say uh, an antipsychotic may be appropriate because those are effective in treating delusions like that. But you know, if it's if it's being used just to sedate someone, then I would say no. Um, it, it, again, it depends on the given situation. One couldn't say it's right or wrong, but the question is, is this drug improving this individual's quality of life? And if it isn't, then it really needs to be reconsidered. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you can answer this question or not, but um, given the fact that, I, I mean, uh, Pierre Terrio of Banner told us that 100% of people experience some sort of behavioral issues during their, you know, period of, uh, of dementia, um, which is not surprising. Um, so given the frequency, why aren't there, why do you think there are not drugs to treat these symptoms specifically for dementia? I mean, I, we're hearing now um, certain pharma is trying to get into this, but it's actually just quite surprising to me because this is not a new problem and it affects so many people. Um, I am at a loss as to how to answer that question. Um, yeah, it's kind of unfair for me to ask you because you're not developing the meds. Yeah. <laughs> but I just thought, you know, if you, if you look at current trends, by the year 2050, Alzheimer's disease or dementias in general will be a bigger cause of psychosis than any other condition. And yet we don't have any antipsychotics specifically for people with dementia. There's one for folks uh, for hallucinations and delusions in Parkinson's disease, but there's nothing for people specifically with dementia. And yeah, it is a mystery because it, you know, market wise, the market is clearly there. Um, are, are patients and caregivers willing to uh, go into studies, they absolutely beg for the study. So I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm it sure is, there's good reason, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's a, it's a big mystery because this one comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. um, you've given us a lot of great um, advice today, and thank you so much for your time. I, I'm sure other questions will come through later, um, and we can direct them towards you if, if that's sure. okay. Um, but it's hugely helpful to hear a doctor's um, perspective of how you prescribe, what types of things you, you consider, and really what types of questions we should be asking the doctor um, to ensure the best treatment for our loved ones or for people, you know, from the, who have been diagnosed. Yeah. Um, so Dylan Wint, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Dylan Wint from Cleveland Clinic. Um, he's great 
um, Alzheimer's doctor and uh, often comes and gives us great advice. So thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Always great to be with you. So if you want um, more on this or uh, you want to, you missed part of the interview, please go to beingpatient.com. There, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. We will give you um, the heads up on when these talks are coming up. Um, They're really designed to connect you to the expert community. Um, So please sign up for our newsletters to understand um, and um, get warning of when our next talks are happening. Thanks very much for watching. See you next time.